Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Hey, today we got a great guest for you and uh, someone that uh, has a great book that actually came out several years ago, a book called Confessions of a Public Speaker. And uh, so actually he has a new book coming out and uh, he had his publisher reach out to us about the uh, possibility of chatting a little bit. And I said, yeah, I want to chat, but I want to talk about Confessions of a Public Speaker. So that's what we dig into today. Today we are talking with Scott Birkin, who again is the uh, author of Confessions of a Public Speaker. We talked through how his speaking career has evolved over the years. We talk about uh, why he chooses to position himself as a writer who happens to speak instead of the opposite there. Uh, We also talk about how he chooses his next book topics and how his book drives his speaking business. We talk about how to pick an idea, stay focused on it. And then we, again, we dig into his new book, The Dance of the Possible, which is a, a really fun book and a book all about creativity. I think you're going to dig. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with uh, the author of Confessions of a Public Speaker and The Dance of the Possible, Mr. Scott Birkin. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab. Hey, today I'm joined by Scott Birkin, who is the author of many books, but uh, one that you may have heard of him from is Confessions of a Public Speaker. came out a few years ago. He's also got a new book that's recently out called The Dance of the Possible. So we're going to be digging into uh, those today. So Scott, what's up, brother? How's your day going? Hey, pretty good. Pretty good. How are you, Grant? Not too shabby. Hey, man. Give us a snapshot of your business today, what it is that you do, and then uh, more than that, like how does speaking fit into your world today? Are you still doing quite a bit of speaking? What, what does that look like? Sure. My life is two parts in terms of professional life anyway. <laughs> the first part is writing books. So I've written seven books over 12 or 13 years on different topics, They're mostly business or culture, philosophy, and those books dovetail really nicely with the speaking business. So for every book... When it comes out, it usually drives a new wave of interest in my work, and I get hired to speak. And the books feed off each other, and the lectures feed off each other. So I probably make, I don't know, 60 to 70% of my income from speaking and 20 to 30% from the books. Nice. I don't do much consulting, but every now and then, someone asks me to come in and give a keynote, and they want me to meet with some teams of people and, and coach them or just give them feedback on what they're working on. So maybe that's 5% of my income. Yeah. When I started, that was more of the focus. I had to do more training and workshop stuff, but now it's just the books and the lectures. What kind of conferences and events are you speaking at? I'd say 50%, and I'm not entirely making up a number, but I don't track it that closely. I'd say about 50% are tech sector, business, entrepreneurship-related events or conferences. And then another 20 to 30% are design and creativity-based events for organizations. And then the other 30% of those, that, is that my math that up 50, 20? Yeah. <laughs> give, or, give, or, give or take. <laughs> the other 30% is uh, all across the board. Yeah. And that's often the most fun stuff is, uh, 
you know, a dental association event yeah. or a lawyer event or a medical instruments. It's amazing how many events are, are there. I'm always, it never ceases to amaze me how many different kinds of events Some there random are. Random associations out there for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, how many events a, a year are you doing? You know, I've always averaged somewhere between 20 and 30 a okay. year. And it's more if I have a book, that, a new book that comes out because I'll do more promotional stuff. And a lot, some of that or a lot of it, I won't get paid for. Yeah. But I've always averaged somewhere between 20 and 30. It's been very stable for me for the most part. How did you get into speaking in the first place? Like where, where did that start? Because I think that's a spot where a lot of people have a difficult time is, you know, I spoke at some local rotary club or some chamber of commerce. It was fun. I got good feedback. I want to do this more. I don't know where to go. And so that's where like a lot of people come to us from. So like, give us your origin story. Sure. I think it's a hustle no matter what your origin story is. Everyone wants to believe there's some magic thing. And unless you won an Olympic medal or you're doing something that gets you on a major talk show, it's going to be a hustle. And so uh, the hustle for me was I think that my skills at speaking got honed when I worked at Microsoft. I was a manager. I managed teams of people. I worked on products. I had to do a lot of public speaking. And I was terrible at it, but I thought it was important to represent the work my team was doing. So I practiced and I had some coaching and I got better at it. And then by the time I quit my job to try to become a writer, I knew that speaking would be a natural part of that, that I'd have to speak to promote the books. So my first book came out in 2005 and I spoke at lots of events and organizations for free to promote the book. And little by little over time, that book did well. So I got invited based on the book to speak in places and that led to the next book and the next book. And it just continued from there. So I think I spoke for free. This is a common story among professional speakers. I spoke for free, but they were at good events and I did well. And I had a book to partner with it that represented me in places I couldn't speak, but that led to me being invited into places that I never would have been invited before. Right, right. When you were early on getting started there, how did you know what you wanted to be speaking on or who you wanted to be speaking to? Because the, again, there's some speakers that are going like, I know exactly what I want to speak about and exactly who I want to speak to. And some going like, I got 94 different topics that I feel like I could be decent at. So how did uh, you kind of determine that? And same with like audience, you know, of just like, I don't, like we were joking about, it. like there's so many different associations and groups. And a lot of times when you're getting started, like you don't even know what's on the menu. You have no idea what the options are behind the curtain. So how did you uh, kind of feel your way through that? There are two ways here. So first, I'm a little different than a lot of the speakers in that I primarily wanted to be and still want to be a writer. That is the primary index about how I shape a lot of my decisions. Most of my income comes from speaking, and I do love to speak, but that's not the primary. It wasn't the first way that I got into this. So that, that changes some things. That meant that to write a book and find an audience for a book, you're aiming at a profession. My first book was about managing teams of people, so I'd aim at managers of teams of people. My background was in the software industry, so that aimed me at managers of teams of people in the software industry. And since I'd worked there for about a decade, I knew people who worked at different companies, and I could reach out to them and go, hey, I have this book out. Can I come to your organization? And if you can fill enough seats, I'll come and speak for free. So the network I had from my regular job was the first network I used to speak. And that's my best recommendation to people who are trying this out. The fact that you're smart and can speak about 90 things has no bearing on what kind of network you have for those 90 things. Yeah. Which things have you had jobs in? Well, if you had jobs and you had coworkers, if you're coworkers, you have a network and that's where you have to start. And that may mean you start at small places, but 
you speak at a small place and you do well. And now you've met 10 people who came to that event that didn't know you before. Your network has grown. You can ask each of them, hey, would you want me to do this talk for you at your company or at your organization? They'll go, yeah, that'd be great. And now it starts to go. And again, that all sounds very logical and very obvious, but that's the hustle. And your network of profession also builds your credibility. If you've been working as a doctor for 10 years, you should probably be speaking about being a doctor rather than how to manage a little league team or something that you've never done before. Right. You're going to have more credibility and more of a network with wherever you started. You said early on and even today, you really position yourself as more of a writer who happens to speak. And I think that's really important because for a lot of people who are interested in speaking, speaking is typically one pillar of what they want to build. I want to be a speaker. I want to write. I want to have books. I want to have a blog. I want to have a podcast. I want to you know fill in the blank. All these number of different coaching, consulting things that you could do. So like, how important has it been for you to really distinguish I'm a writer first and a speaker second and a, and I, even like you mentioned, like I barely do consulting and that's by choice. Um, so how have you kind of determined all these different things I could do to help people, to impact people, to make change. And I choose to position myself as a writer first and as a speaker second, like how have you kind of arrived at that conclusion? Well, there's two ends of it. I think when I get up on stage to present, I don't think anyone in the audience really cares what I think of myself as being. They want to hear a good talk. They want to learn whatever the topic said they were going to learn. They want to be motivated or they want to laugh a little bit and leave with a different point of view. So I try to make it irrelevant. Whatever work I'm doing, the people in the audience are there to have me do that work. But I just meant in terms of being an author or, or wanting to be a writer that some of the choices I make are a little bit different than someone whose pure ambition is I just want to speak for a living and I don't care what I have to do to 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 achieve that. Now I've lost my train of thought and where else the question. You repeat the question for me. <laughs> I think it's the audience doesn't care, but like when someone's right. looking at maybe deciding whether or not to hire you, uh, they may yeah. care on whether or not. Yes. Oh, speaking is this one thing they did one time versus exactly. speaking is like a, a key piece of what they do. Sure. I, I think that's been part of the strategy that I've used that's been effective for me is that I, re- I believe in the writing. I don't write books as a way to sell my speaking business, which I think a lot of us, we see those books and we read them and the books are not really very good because they're not written to be things into themselves. So I write the books caring about, I want this to be a great book. And I am convinced that when people who are in workplaces or organizations that have events, if they read a great book, that answers a question they want to answer for their team, the first person they want to think to invite to speak is the author of that book. Yeah. And so that's how those things tie together. I feel like if I write a great book on a subject that's important, then that will lead to requests or interest in me as a speaker. And they'll at least want to come to my website and go watch a video and go, yeah, this guy actually seems interesting and dynamic. And we've read his book already. We're fans of him. So let's bring him in to speak and we'll pay him to do that. Okay. Well, I want to talk about that for a second in terms of the books, because it sounds like the books intentionally or unintentionally are definitely leading to and driving the speaking business. So, but I agree with what you're saying. The book comes first and it's not just, I'm putting out this as a big fancy business card to hopefully get speaking engagements from it. So a lot of of people do that though. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And like you said, I think it shows though in the book, you know, and it it comes across accordingly. So how have you used books in your speaking business? Do you feel like your speaking business would be what it is today without books? And like, because again, there, we can kind of go back and forth on the, do you need a book in order to be a speaker? I guess is the primary there question. Are, there are plenty of speakers who do it without it. I think it's possible to do it. I just, I probably couldn't, if, let's see, if, if you told me I had to do this and I couldn't, I couldn't write books, I'd have to find some other way to, there'd be a different kind of hustle I'd have to do where I'd have to promote 
uh, videos of me speaking online better than I do. I don't do very much of that at all. And I probably should. I think in this day and age, we know that Facebook has changed so much to, to benefit video and even short clips of things. I don't have any of that material. I, I probably would have to do that. I probably have to produce good, high quality, one minute, two minute videos, samples of me speaking and work to promote that and let that lead the way yeah. where there, that would be the evidence people would have. People would go, oh, I just saw this one minute clip of this guy talking about the mistakes that we've made on our project team. This is exactly the thing that we should be talking about. Oh, he's just, oh, he's got a website. Oh, and you need some other way, some other entry point. And I'm sure you've had people on your podcast who are, have much more expertise at that stuff than I do. But I'd imagine I have to find some other entry point, some other marketing vehicle. And I probably should be doing that stuff anyway, because really the direct, there's something so direct about video for speaking. A book is a, is a, is a tangent. Yeah. That just because someone wrote a good book doesn't mean that they're going to be good in front of a room full of people. Totally. So a one minute video clip, you see, yeah, look, he's in front of a crowd there. They like what he's saying. I like what he's saying. How do we get this person to come into our company? Is there anything proactively that you're doing to say, okay, the, the book is good for credibility. Someone reads the book and it's something that I happen to speak on. So I know I could help them and their audience with it. Is there anything that you're doing with the book to proactively lead to speaking engagements? Because there's for some readers, there's the disconnect of going like, I read this book. Oh, that was interesting, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I think that this is a speaker or that this is a speaker yeah. that could come. I just thought you wrote a good book. So is there anything yeah. that you're doing there that's like using the book to really specifically lead to speaking engagements? Yeah, I suppose I have a confession, and that, that is the title of the book that wanted that let, led to you wanting me on your podcast. Let it out. This is a safe place. I don't think that I'm that great at marketing. I think a lot of speakers are very good, especially like the best speakers who are marketers are speakers who speak about marketing to marketers. <laughs> they're like the best at this. Circle of life. It is. They're they're the best. And if you really want to learn about marketing speaking, go check out some people who just speak about marketing because they have it a lot of the stuff down and they know the latest things about using social media and marketing strategy. And I'm really not that great at it. I, I think uh, I depend on the books and the books being really good to carry a lot of the weight for me. And I, I'm also, uh, I'm afraid of letting the book feel like, like a, a business card where I've read books where every third page, the author is talking about another case study that they did of some amazingly happy client. And I'm like, come on, like you're writing the book about this topic. Why are you hitting me over the head with how awesome you are at something that doesn't help me as a reader? Right. So I try to be very cautious about that. And usually at the back of the book, I'll have a page before the acknowledgements. It says, hey, like write a review of the book. I'll do my pitch at the end when I feel like they're done and either they liked the book or they didn't. They probably liked it if they made it that far. And I'll very politely ask them to help the book along review the book. If you want me to come to your event, come to this link and see a demo of me speaking. So most of my books have a page at the end. And that's as far as I've been willing to go in the book about promoting the speaking. Gotcha. Okay. And the confession is maybe that's a mistake. Uh, maybe I should be pushing that further that maybe I'm under marketing myself because I don't do it enough. But I've read enough books that frustrated me as a reader where I felt like the author, I paid for this book. Why are you marketing to me and selling to me in a book that I paid for, you know, right. that just seems, seems like it's crossing some kind of uh, golden rule of respect. Right. 
I mean, it sounds like today that much of the speaking is driven by books and just even probably, I assume, repeat and referral clients. And speaking, I mean, as you well know, speaking is very much a momentum game and that the more you're speaking, the easier it is to get bookings, you know. But when you're starting, getting that traction is really, really difficult. So some people have this kind of misconception of, well, I'm just going to I'm gonna put up a website and just wait for the phone to ring or I'm going to put up my demo video or I'm going to just write a book. And I know, man, I know as soon as I write that book, no, like... I'm just going to get booked left and right. And it just doesn't work like that. So oh. what did you do early on in that, <laughs> dude, I got a good book out there and yeah. now I want it to lead to speaking engagements, but I, I got to get it in front of the right people. Anything that you did early on that made a difference? Well, uh, I think you're right that it's such a daunting thing for most people to even do any of the work required to get in the game, like to write a book or to put a website together. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And they're in the illusion. You have a, certain amount of ego required to do that. But that same ego blinds you to the fact there's, a, there's thousands of other people that are trying to enter the same game that you are. So right. it's going to, it's, it's sort of like wanting to be wanting to play in the NBA or something. And right. it's just because you want to do oh, it. I just want to do it. Yeah. Just want to do it. Uh, you, got, you got some sneakers and a basketball, you know, like now you can play, but can you play at that level? Or you, anyway, you understand. We, I think we agree about that. <laughs> I didn't, there was nothing. Uh, like I said, I relied on my network. I've been working in an industry for a decade. I reached out to all the people who I knew who were at high-profile companies or at least big enough companies where they had a speaker series. They, ha they already had some machinery for marketing a speaker coming in, and I spoke for free. And I, I, I mean, I still speak for free when I have a new book come out. If I feel like I can go into a high-profile company and I'm reaching out to them, that's part of it. If I'm reaching out to them and I'm saying, I want to talk about this, then I'm more likely – and it's a place I feel like I'm going to reach a new audience or get a, get a bigger audience – then I'm okay doing that for free as long as it's on my terms. Yeah. If, um, but anyway, to answer your question though, reached out to my network, found places to speak. Some of them, most of them were not that exciting, or but they, 50 people, 100 people, that's a lot of people. If you right. do 10, 12, 15 lectures to 100 people, like that's all, that 2,000 people now. Yeah. And if you have the right material, you're answering their questions, you're solving their problems, you're going to be invited for something else. That was my experience anyway. Right. How did you make the transition from, I'm going to just go around and speak at some of these things for free just to get my name out there, get the book out there to, no, I'm a, like, I'm a paid speaker and I, and I charge a fee for the value that I'm providing. How did you make that mental leap? Well, for the first few years, uh, the first book came out in 2005. That book was Making Things Happen, which was about project management and managing teams of people. I taught workshops. I knew that from my, as a manager myself, I had hired people to come in and teach workshops to my staff. So I knew that that was an easier business to sell. You're selling a product of training. That's a much easier business to sell to organizations because they're familiar with it. They have courses and every company organization has HR classes or skill development classes. So for the first couple of years, way more of my income was from training. And I use speaking, giving lectures as a way to fuel that business, which a lot of people still do. Yep. That you give a lecture and you're like, hey, you like, you like this 30-minute lecture? Well, imagine what I could do for your team if you hired me for a day mm -hmm. to teach a course. So I did a lot of that. And then the second book was called The Myths of Innovation, which was a bestseller. It was a really popular book. A different topic, though, but that led to the same thing, that I would speak on that and then do workshop, full-day workshops. And then by the time I got to 2008 or so, uh, I was getting enough requests just to give lectures and just to give keynotes, and they were offering money. And uh, I had a couple years of that before I wrote the book that you know me for, Confessions of a Public Speaker, where I realized over the course of doing this how many mistakes I had made. I had done everything wrong. In some cases, just about the production and how you 
the craft of storytelling yeah. and making a good presentation, but also around the business of it too. And I thought that I had not read a book that was honest about speaking well and also the life of being someone who speaks for a living. And that's why I wrote the book. But there's so many books on public speaking and a lot of them have the same material and the same advice, but they don't talk about the mistakes. They don't talk about things going wrong. They don't talk about how even experts get nervous, even experienced speakers get nervous. And so that's why I wrote Confessions was to be an honest guide to speaking well. Yeah. It's very true that outside looking in, speaking is very glamorous and sexy and yada yada, but there's a very non-glamorous, non-sexy tedious, monotonous, repetitive, boring side that nobody <laughs> sees. You know, you just you think you get up on stage and you, you speak for 3,000 people and then you sign autographs and books for the next hour and then you get whisked away. It's like yeah. occasionally that might happen, <laughs> but that is not the norm at no. all. No, not the norm. Not the norm. I mean, even if it was, it's a very unusual way to make a living. It's kind of very lonely in certain ways. It's very, just very strange. Yeah. It's for the, mo- for the most part, I love it. I, I feel grateful that I'm able to do this. I don't know that I'll be able to do it forever, but I, take, I don't take it for granted. But it just uh, requires a lot more work than people assume. A lot Since more work. the books generally kind of drive the speaking business, how do you determine what the t- next topic of the book is? Because for some people, it's like, hey, I figure out what I want to speak on, and I'm going to speak on that for the next foreseeable future, for the next several years. But you have the model that several speaker authors do, that I write a book, and the book basically, I can speak about you know what I, what I wrote about five years ago, but this is really what I want to be speaking about. This is what's fresh and what's hot. So how are you determining what that next topic is going to be? This is a great question because I don't have a great answer for this. I think about it all the time. So I'm not saying that I'm not invested in finding an answer, but I don't have a great answer for this. I think part of why I got into this lifestyle was I am an insanely curious person, that I love things I don't know. And that's why none of my books are sequels. They're all about different subjects. Yeah. Now they're roughly in the same – they're business or culture or philosophy. They're all nonfiction, but there's no sequel. And if I was an agent or a business advisor, I'd say, that's really kind of dumb. (laughs) (laughs) The people who become experts and the most, uh, in terms of speaking anyway, the people who earn the greatest fees for being an expert on, I don't know, closet reorganization or, uh, you know, um, uh, mergers and acquisitions or some person who listens to your podcast, that's the most famous speaker on mergers and acquisitions. (laughs) They grow that expertise because they repeat the same topic. They write three books on the same topic or six books on the same topic. But I think for my own happiness as a person on the planet, that'd be limiting. If If I can get away with it, I'd rather be writing books about things that challenge me as a writer because that's more likely to make things that are going to satisfy readers. That's my belief. So yeah. another confession, I guess, is if I were smarter, if I, if I centered more on trying to earn as much money as I could, I should have written three books on project management or three books on innovation. Or And so I guess my answer, I'm giving you a long-winded answer. Part of my answer to the next book question is, what am I curious about? What is the thing that I'm, I'm really – I'm interested enough to know that it's important, but I'm not an expert in it yet. How do I shape it into a book? Who has the same questions that I do and what answers can I provide for them? That tends to drive my motivation for the next book. And so this new book is an experiment. This new book is the closest thing I've ever done to a sequel. The new book is called The Dance of the Possible, and it's meant to be an honest and a reverent guide to creativity. And there's tons of very good books on creative thinking, but I just like my opinion about public speaking books. I feel like there's something 
boring about them, predictable about mm -hmm. them. They don't talk about the hard parts. They make it all seem straightforward and easy. And I wanted to write a book like Confessions that told about the truth of what it's like to try to come up with ideas for books or ideas for presentations and get to the harder truth. So it's the closest thing I've ever done to a sequel. And uh, so far, it's done fine. It hasn't done amazing. It hasn't done badly. But I'm curious to see how it will pan out in terms of is it something that will re-engage people who are, had me speak about Missive Innovation when that book came out eight years ago? Uh, will it reconnect with them? Will it find me a new audience? It's the first book I have with creativity in the title. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know, which is sort of – it's a great question, but I don't feel like I'm qualified to give a good answer. I guess I did. The, be the, the most solid grounded advice is to develop your expertise in one area yeah. and, and, and come back on it and come back to it and overlap over it so that your audience, you build up an audience of people who bought three of your books or four of your books, and they're, they, you are the guy they go to or the woman that they, that they go to for mergers and acquisition, uh, new knowledge. Right. But at the same time, like the, the counterpoint is that you know, you're an example of you've written and spoke on a variety of different topics, all under a umbrella, but albeit a bigger umbrella. I mean, you can go the other route and say, this is what's interesting to me. And that's what's interesting to me. So that's the path I'm going to go down. How have you balanced though? This happens to be what I'm curious about, but I can't that's not a topic that speakers are being hired for, right? So if all of a sudden you're like, I'm insanely curious about, um, you know, the Frisbee golf or something, and yeah. I'm just hardcore into that, and I've got to be the person that writes the definitive guide on that, but nobody's right. hiring speakers on that. How have you kind of balanced that? The Like the artist side and the business side. Like yeah. this is the thing I'm passionate about, but like I also have to eat and live indoors. So how have you kind yeah. of managed that? The best answer I've had for this, this actually comes up in the dance of the possible, this very question of how do you, if you're someone who has lots of ideas, how do you balance the ones you're, mo you're most passionate about, which are probably not going to be the ones that are most profitable to base a business around? How do you manage that? And the best answer that I've found is an answer from uh, Steven Soderbergh, the film director. And he has this basic philosophy he tries to follow. He does one thing, one project for commerce. He'll do a major Hollywood film. And then he'll do one project for art, which is something that he just – a creative project that he's passionate about that he thinks – it, it could have great value for the world, but the likelihood, the likelihood of it being profitable on the same magnitude as a more commercial project is very low. Yeah. And that if, if he was purely trying to be the most lucrative film director ever, he would never do those projects. But right. he knows that he's passionate about exploring and challenging his skill set, so he goes back and forth. So that's really the that's – the, that's what I'm trying to get towards is uh, I'll do one major book that's more business-oriented and more predictable. Its market is more predictable. And then do a project that's maybe a little bit smaller, but, but a book that is more creative, more ambitious, takes some more risks. Because I'm convinced that I will learn things or anyone will learn things by doing those projects that will be applicable to the mainstream, I got to pay my bills next month projects that you'd never learn if yeah. you didn't do those things. Yeah. And so the Frisbee golf example, if I suddenly got really passionate about Frisbee golf, which by the way, I played and it is kind of fun. If I was really excited about that, the first thing I would do is I'd go, I'd find the Frisbee golf group. I live in Seattle. There's, I know there's, there's got to be some club. Yeah. And I'd say, um, you know, do you have regular meetings? Can I come and speak to your – there's always an audience. It's just a question of how big and what size. And I'm sure that I could talk to them about Frisbee golf and give them a little lecture. And if I developed that into a book about how to convince your friends to play Frisbee golf, they'd be the beginning of that audience. And maybe it's bigger than I thought. Who knows? Yeah. But I've given talks on all kinds of weird subjects or unusual subjects 
because they're interesting to me. I haven't been paid for them. I'll go to whatever that organization is. And I'm just, I like the challenge of give me a talk about this subject. And they know, and I know I've never given a lecture on that before. That's really a thrilling and fun exercise of my ability to think and to develop stories and to test my ambition. Am I really that good a speaker that I can speak about anything for 20 minutes? I kind of think that I am, but unless I prove it, you know, maybe that's just my ego talking. Right. One of the things I know uh, with the the Dance of the Possible, a new book you've got out, is entrepreneurs uh, especially have a, a million ideas all the time. And so trying to sift through and determine which ones do I pay attention to, which ones do I follow, and which ones do I say, that's nice, that's a good idea, maybe even a great idea. I just can't get to it right now. So how do you kind of sift through good ideas from great ideas? How do you remain focused on what you're working on? Kind of talk us through some ideas there. Sure. It's a good question because so much of the creativity literature is obsessed with idea generation and idea generation itself is not very hard. You can find there's hundreds of different techniques for coming up with ideas for things. It's really not the hard part. Uh, in, in my book, I have one chapter that talks about idea generation. I teach three or four methods. That's really all that you need. The, the fallacy about ideas is that ideas have magical powers to execute on them. It's usually the execution on the idea that's way more important and often the test of how good the ideas are not. So the advice that I always offer is, if you have, let's say you have a thousand ideas, you really don't necessarily need to pick the best one, which would probably be impossible to do anyway. You may want to do some kind of vetting of like dividing into thirds, the third with the most potential and the third with some potential and the third with the least potential. And you can almost pick something at random from the first third and start working on it. You're going to have to develop it into some kind of concept. And that's where the real creative work is, that I could have an idea for a flying car, which for the last 50 years, in some you know teenage boy subcultures, has been this right. incredibly fascinating or jetpack. Another great example. The concept, the idea of a jetpack, the idea of a flying car, is great. It sounds wonderful. We see it in films. It makes us excited. Oh wow! Someday we'll have the flying car from Blade Runner or whatever. But then when you actually do the thinking, you start trying to develop it into a concept, and that's a clear distinction. An idea is just an abstraction. A concept means you thought through some of the basic logistics of how it's going to work. Yeah. And so a flying car very quickly realized, okay, cars are heavy. <laughs> Gas is expensive. <laughs> What's the basic concept for making a flying car function at all? Yeah. And now you have to do some thinking. The idea is still the same, a flying car. But the concept now, you got to start thinking, how does this work? And in doing that thinking, you'll vet out the idea. If it's a strong idea, the, as you make the concept for it, you go, you know what? We can. This is lightweight material. It's this like new kind of aluminum. It's actually lighter than air or whatever. And gas. We're not going to use gas. Be solar powered. And you actually do that. You're not just making up this stuff. You've done the research to back up the concept. Now you're on your way to an idea that has some wind behind it. It's got some legs. Yeah. And that's the exercise to do. You're not going to know how good an idea is really until you do that exercise. You run for an hour, a half hour. Let's try to make this idea work. What parts of it would be easy? What parts would be possible? What parts we'd have to invent a new kind of physics to, to make it work? Right. Uh, that, that's how you vet your ideas. That's true, I think, for blog posts. That's true for book ideas. It's true for presentation ideas. That you have to do at least that first level of concept development. And in most cases, that means an outline. I have this great topic. You know, Why should you commit your friends to play Frisbee golf? Well, that's a topic. That's a title. What are the 10 bullet points I'd have in there? Can yeah. I come up with 10? Uh, maybe there's just only have one. Well, then it's probably not a very strong idea. Right, right. 
Interesting. All right. I got one other question I want to ask you, but before, and I'm going to put you on the spot with that one. I'm going to steal something from your own book here. But before we get to that one, tell us about the dance of the possible. We've pun intended danced around it a little bit, but where can people find it? What's the nutshell of what the book is about? Why should speakers go pick it up? It's every book on creative thinking stops at the idea generation point. They very rarely go past that. And so the book is focused on, well, okay, fine. You get your idea. And I told you in the second chapter, talk about idea generations. What happens after that? How do you develop ideas into concepts? That's chapter four of the book. The Dance of the Possible, the title refers to this series of back and forth flows that are unavoidable when you're making new things. You're always going to have these phases where you have you need more ideas to, and then you, you know, you're going to have situations and phases where you're going to go the other way and you have to cut down ideas and you never know for sure how to explore enough and you never know for sure about to cut down and pick one title that said i pick the best one that these uncertainties are scary to us we wish there was a certain formula to use to solve these problems and the spirit of the book is that there isn't one that if you are a creative person and you're doing creative work you'll always have these uncertainties you have to reconcile with about what is good? Is this good enough to ship? Is this good enough to publish? Is this good enough to put online? There's no simple answer to that question. A lot of the things we, that you struggle with as a creative person are dealing with these subjective things. And so the book is focused on exploring those subjective, unavoidable, and, and important and useful feelings in a healthy way from the perspective of someone who's been creating stuff for 20 years. It's really what I've done for, for all of my professional life. Yeah. It's also only a two-hour read and it's called it has the word irreverent is in the title because I make fun of other creativity books and cliches, cliches that you heard because they lead us astray more than they help, I think. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, I definitely encourage people to pick that up. We'll definitely link up to that in the show notes. Again, that's the dance of the possible. Make sure you pick that up. All right, here's my last question for you. This is a question that I like to ask speakers from time to time. And I realized I think I stole this from you. All right. So um, <laughs> okay. I like to ask speakers their horror stories of tell us about a time where it couldn't be worse than this. And uh, I think I remember that was one of the last chapters in your yes. book, Confessions of a Speaker, was uh, you can't do worse than this. So I think maybe yeah. that's one of the things that I, I came across and was like, oh, that, that's a good concept. So I've been asking speakers that and uh, give credit to Scott Birkin that it originated with <laughs> you. So no pressure. We've asked this to a lot of speakers yeah. on the show. And now we, uh, we come back to the originator. Tell us about a time where it couldn't be worse than this. I mean, there's, there's a lot. Every speaker has a lot of horror stories. The one that I think about most often when I get asked this is uh, I was giving a lecture in uh, Trinidad, and it was I was talking about innovation, and I was the opening speaker at a hotel, like the the big central hotel, not theater, but like multi-function room used for events. And about two minutes into my lecture, fire alarm goes off. And you always just team a fire alarm just to test. It'll go off in a minute. It didn't go off. And I tried to keep talking, and I'm loud. I'm good at using a microphone, so I could talk over it. Yeah. But that's really a terrible experience for everybody. <laughs> totally, totally. Now, while I'm trying to continue, keep things going, I am trying to pay attention to the staff because I don't know if this is a real fire or not. Right. I may need to tell people to leave. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm, as I'm talking, I'm looking to the host, and I'm looking to the back of the room, like the staff at the hotel. And... They, they seem like they're looking at me like it's fine. And then all of a sudden I see the host and the, the staff go out into the hallway and, and they disappear. And then I see some of, some of the staff running, like, like running down the hall. <laughs> and I am talking to the audience and I'm, I'm trying to hold it together. You know, like I still don't know what to tell them yet. So I always remember that moment being on stage where I'm trying to give a presentation over a fire alarm trying to determine with my background <laughs> processing, is there actually an emergency or not? 
it turned out there wasn't one, but um, six or seven minutes of a fire alarm going off is kind of hard to recover from. So it was not <laughs> a great performance, but it was something as often as the case is just beyond your control as a speaker. Yep. There's nothing. There's nothing I could have done to remedy that. So. In in those instances, the uh, the show must go on, and and the audience takes their cues from you. So it's no big deal to you. It's no big deal to them. Yeah. And you no, just, you just got to roll with it. It makes a good story someday. It makes a good. It makes it made a good story at the event because yeah. I, it was a joke I had with everyone who was there. Was, yep. uh, did you yep. like the part where I had the fire alarm sound yep. go off? Like, yeah, I tell you good. what, like that's one thing I've always enjoyed about speaking is when those moments happen that they know, like the audience knows like that wasn't supposed to happen. This is off script. And now we all have like this shared experience that we can kind of joke and talk about. And that makes for great humor as well. Yeah. There's definitely a lesson in there. If the speaker responds to these unfair situations with grace and with humor, then the audience will follow along. And if the speaker gets upset or freaked out by it, then the audience will think it's uh, it's, it's much worse than it could have been. Right. Well, Scott, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate you hanging out with us and uh, sharing some of your, uh, your nuggets of knowledge al- uh, along the way. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Scott Birkin. Again, I'd encourage you to check out his new book, The Dance of the Possible, as well as uh, Confessions of a Public Speaker, which again came out a couple of years ago. Hey, I know I've mentioned it to you a few times before, but what are you waiting on? You definitely need to stop by and check out freespeakerworkshop.com freespeakerworkshop.com if you're a new speaker or veteran speaker and you're just trying to figure out how you find and book more paid speaking engagements then freespeakerworkshop.com is the place for you so make sure you stop by and check that out all right boys and girls that wraps up today's episode we'll catch you next time you're awesome